Welcome to Vija, please. Have a voyage through the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. I'm your co-host, Peter. And Peter, I, this is you know going to sound a little out of place because, of course, we record these episodes a couple weeks before the air. But you're headed to Gen, uh, not Gen Con. You're headed to Dragon Con. That's right. Fuck Gen Con. We are talking Dragon Con. We're going to be rolling in deep. Uh, I am on the hype train, big time. Work is killing me. All I want to be doing is having super nerd uh, mega adventure down in Atlanta. And hopefully, uh, hopefully I come back with some excellent stories. Last year, I sat in on a panel with uh, Garrett Wang, uh, Robert Duncan McNeil, uh, Ethan Phillips, and who was the other person? Oh, John Delance. Jesus, I never remember his name. I'm going to sound like an asshole now. Delancey Delance. I fucked you up on it, too. <laughs> Tell me about Gen Con. Uh, I keep saying Gen Con. Tell me about Dragon Con overall. Like uh, on the scale of cons, as far as like how it's organized and its size, like does it still have like that kind of like down to earth feel? Is that what's so good about it? Like it's not super corporate. It's not too managed. It's a little it's a little more anarchic, a little bit more of a party atmosphere. Uh, Yes, it is not down to earth in that uh, anything feels real or normal it feels like a crazy fever dream where a bunch of nerds somehow decided they wanted to throw this big party convention and thousands of people show up in droves and everything is excellent uh so that does not feel grounded but if you look at something like uh comic con that has basically become like a test bed for hollywood and a launching point for you know multimedia productions uh it is absolutely not that Uh, i can't recommend it enough to anybody it is um extremely hard to go to dragon con because there's not enough hotel rooms or airbnbs or campgrounds in atlanta like you have to have a room reserved 369 days before dragon con like reservations open before the next year even starts so it's crazy we thought our room got canceled because of a visa authorization error so that was like a real oh shit moment but everything got squared away and uh we're rolling in with james this time so we'll be rocking the tos original gold red blue trio and just you know causing trouble and having a good time i can't wait to hear how you managed to fit into conversation with someone there that you have a Star Trek podcast, preferably while intoxicated. Don't let us down, Peter. Preferably a member of Voyager cast. I, I don't know. I, I don't think those guys have bodyguards. <laughs> I might be able to to force myself on one of them and and, and talk their ear off. But uh, I don't no, think I'm... you'll be one of the. I don't think you'll be the first sweaty nerd to tell them that they <laughs> so you, they have a Voyager podcast. To be fair, I am sure that in the whole scope of of dragon con if we were to make a pie chart of who does and who does not have a podcast the uh the people who do not have the podcast will be the minority slice yes yeah well we are what we behold oh man i was gonna try and segue somehow into the episode there and i thought i had something but i don't what did we watch this week peter season four episode six the raven so i think the production of this episode has an interesting pedigree that I wanted to talk about first. This is the first episode written by Brian Fuller. I have mentioned him a couple times as a positive writing force on Voyager in its latter half and ultimately became quite a 
a Trek guru to the point where he was uh, slated to be the original showrunner for Discovery. Back when the like, remember, I don't know if you remember the original idea for Discovery is that it was going to be essentially American Horror Story, but Star Trek in the sense that each season would be like a different ship and era. I I never heard that. And that sounds fucking amazing. And I wish that is what it was. Yeah. So the original pitch of the show back when Kurtzman was nowhere to be found and it was the Brian Fuller uh, experience is that he wanted to do. Uh, the the American Horror Story type of like serialized seasons where, okay, so this season takes place in the TOS era on this ship. This might take place in like one of those intermediate eras, like, you know, the Cardassian War, uh, you know, in, in between TOS and TNG. This happens after TNG. And the idea, of course, A, it would allow them to do more modular storytelling and then B, in a kind of Fargo-esque move, like show you like the ancestors or descendants of characters is still in Starfleet. And of course, bring in people from existing shows, like you bring in the TNG people, you know, has happened 30 years later or whatever. That was the original pitch. That's the show he wanted to do. And uh, I was very excited (laughs) about that. I'm not surprised to hear you feel the same way. I also want to go on record as saying that I wish that was the format of what Stranger Things is because I personally really liked season one of Stranger Things and I think season two and season three have kind of been trying to squeeze blood out of a stone. Um, I, you, modern TV has really turned me on to telling a short, concise, yet potent story with a beginning and middle and an end instead of just trying to ride stuff out for the sake of I don't, I assume easier production costs or whatever, but yeah, I noticed we're talking about everything except for this episode. <laughs> yeah. If, I wonder and, why. Uh, and it's also was directed by LeVar Burton. I was sad so, to see that. <laughs> I'm getting the impression. You're not a fan of this episode, Peter. Hmm. You must be half beta Zed. Um, Captain, uh, I'm sensing negative emotions coming out of the co-host. He's not hiding something. What was the last time LeVar Burton directed something? Because it was a turkey, too. What was it? He's had nothing but absolute garbage so far on this uh, season or on this show. His first episode was ex post facto. Oh, God. <laughs> so he he tried to make an ep the the film noir detective story episode with Tuvok and Tom Paris, you know, slam an alien puss. Detective uh, Tuvok, my old boring foe. <laughs> and then his second episode the arch was nemesis of fun. <laughs> his second episode was dreadnought. Another, ter- you know, so real. I'll, I'll post a picture online just so people can see in the, the top secret production studios of my basement. And the professional way that I have one piece of computer paper taped to my wall with another piece of computer paper taped on top of that. And this is my ongoing, uh, my running shit list of of bottom feeder episodes. And yes, Ex Post Facto and Dreadnought are both certainly on that list. And then this. So, you know, it he's he's had two rough outings so far. I did not think this episode was bad i think there was a lot of episodes this episode that 
left a lot on the table, a lot to be desired. I think it's super meme worthy. Well, I got I got enjoyment out of it out of that fact alone. I just listened to our review of uh, Nemesis. Nemesis, and your your miserable fan service to the way they talked on that. So my opinion of you is already really low today. You need you need to turn your trembles into rages. They're already there. And it's just, just hearing that <laughs> stuff just, just sets me off. So being that my opinion of your opinion is in the gutter, I'm not surprised to hear that there were some, some stuff I, you liked about I it. I think what I liked, I, I liked one thing about it. And that is, I think that Jerry Ryan sold at the end, like the whole PTSD angle. And I think it's, it goes, that was well done on her part. I think that clouded for me the rest of this episode being bad (laughs) you know like there's this one good scene where an actress got to turn her acting on and okay that was well done and then i kind of forgot that the rest of it was garbage but now as i sit here and i'm forced to contemplate it yeah i think you're right and to think that you you were the one who accused me of falling in love and, and losing my optics on this series all right man let's start this thing um we pick up, speaking of boring shit, in Leonardo da Vinci's workshop, which we were first introduced to in Scorpion Part 1, where Janeway hatched the harebrained idea of working with the Borg and saving them from a much-needed extinction event, courtesy of species, whatever the numbers are. 8472. The, the space Mewtwo's. Yes. Uh, and in the shop, we've got Janeway, and we've got 7 to 9. And I'll tell you what, man. I forget who brought it up on the trauma support group or Facebook group, but knowing that there was animosity on set between Kate Mulgrew towards Jerry Ryan, uh, I think is just going to loom like a cloud over everything I see in between them. And from what I've been able to see about, you know, way fans talk, it seems like there's a lot of shared scene time, uh, screen time between these two characters and, and a, relationship that will blossom uh, and i think it's gonna be very hard for me to watch it knowing that she was being shitty yeah especially this season fourth season is really dominated by these two having a lot of scenes together as they obviously try to give the viewer as much seven of nine backstory slash tna as possible she's in a burgundy uh skin tight suit this time instead of silver but uh it's still doing her all the favors in the world. I think it's much more toned down than what that silver tinfoil. Oh yeah. Booby suit was, uh, it's, it's much less 80s stripper, I think, but yeah, it's, it's still so blatant. And I mean, if she's more comfortable, great. I, I would like to sit here and say it's ridiculous that she's not just in a uniform, but to the show's credit, you got Neelix who's, you know, ride or die Voyager and he's not in a uniform either. So at least there's kind of a precedent and, and Kess too. Uh, but still it is what it is. And, and we're all very aware. So whatever. Uh, Speaking of, so I thought it interesting, of course, is that they're in the Leonardo da Vinci simulation, but they're not, they're not going to pay uh, John Reese Davies <laughs> to be in this one. Like, they only break out the John Reese Davies money when they really mean it. So uh, they talk around the fact that he's not there. Uh, the 
the idea is that Janeway is attempting to essentially teach Seven about the concept of relaxation and imagination and fucking friendship is magic. I don't know. Uh, it's, you know, the, the idea, as always with these scenes, is that there's some basic tenet of humanity that Seven of Nine is not quite grasping and Janeway is attempting to explain it to her. Like, this is interesting when it's like about understanding interpersonal relationships and why it is, you know, the importance of humanity. But when she's going on and on about how, you know, she needs to learn to fucking lighten up, it's like, I would like to try and give this episode some credit. I think. I think that since we started talking about the Bechdel test, which is that that grading scale for media where can you have two women on screen that are talking about something other than a man? I think that it's really cool that you have these scenes, especially again in, in late nineties television. And it's something you've ranted about before that, you know, Star Trek has had these progressive events, these, uh, these milestones way before the rest of popular media and, and Star Trek just doesn't get the fair credit for it. So that's neat. Um, and I, I want to read into this relationship at this point a little bit and, and flesh it out. Can you see Janeway having scenes or giving any sort of time or attention that she's showing to seven and nine to any other person on this crew? I cannot. However, I will say that seven of nine represents a singularly unique opportunity for two things for her that. I think makes sense for her character as established one. Catherine Janeway is an accomplished scientist. This is a unique opportunity for her to understand the, the process of how the Borg work, how people are assimilated and how can they, they can be de-assimilated, de-assimilated, whatever the right turn of phrase is for that. And, so her devoting the time to trying to reach seven and understand how that works makes sense from that perspective. Second, we are aware that Catherine Janeway does not have a, a, a family in the sense that she's not married. She has no children. And in a, in a, quite frankly, this represents a sort of mothering, nurturing opportunity for her. And here you uh, to, thought the only person who would want to mother and nurture AI or robot people was Balana. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, seeing robot uh, gimp suits as her children. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that it is entirely intended on the part of the producers to have Janeway in a position where she is essentially guiding Seven of Nine as she might guide a child. Uh, maybe not like direct mothering, so so to speak, but something sort of uh, parallel to it. I had two reasons for this that I was drawing in my own head. One was there is a responsibility on Janeway to prove that all of the needless risk that she's taken in bringing a Borg drone onto the ship is going to pay off. And that, you know, this is entirely on her, the decision to do this, and that if there is a a bad event or a failure to integrate or some other problem that arises out of this, it's going to be directly on her hands. So she has to have this personal accountability for getting this former drone copacetic with the rest of the crew. 
And to that point, by the way, and to show how correct you are about that one, uh, Chakotay throws that shit back in her face in this episode later on. But continue. And two, there has been some heavy groundwork. I will recognize that this is not a good episode, but I will also recognize that Brian Fuller and again, the, the power of what you can produce and what you can put on a script when you take the time to read what has come before you. And and I don't think we really need to hypothesize anymore of like, you know, what if this is what they're thinking? Or what if that was what they're thinking? And knowing damn well, that wasn't the case. Like now that there's people who are involved in the show that have bothered to watch a previous episodes, I think we're good to say there's a, there's a concerned effort to try and create continuity here. The second thing is there's been a lot of groundwork laid for Janeway about how lonely she feels on the ship that she has walled herself off from the rest of the crew. And that when she tried to get involved and, uh, be friendly it kind of backfired in her face and i want to say it was the episode where the trabe fucked him over and that kind of made her put her walls back up i i, f- I feel like it was even earlier than that i felt like it was like that was like a fur a season it was one. a Kazon episode I, I think it was well, maybe if it wasn't alliances maybe it was something earlier but she's had you know very specific captain's logs about like i can't afford to be their friends i need to be a leader and that means keeping a distance and now that there's another person that kind of exists outside of the crew I think that gives her the opportunity to be warm with someone without compromising her stance as the captain at large. But I do think you tapped into something pretty powerful with your first point. Uh, almost to the point that there might be a hidden agenda. Janeway's been pretty tricky and and pretty nefarious in the past with some of her dealings that she's like popped up on people that you didn't even think was on her radar. Yeah, man, if she's actually has this hidden agenda where it's like, how do we deprogram and decultize the Borg? Is this a weapon we can wield? Not maybe not a weapon. Just, you know, this is this is some pretty deep in the paint R&D she's conducting here. The scene wraps when they Seven of Nine has a vision, essentially. Uh, she's staring at the Da Vinci flying machine model. And she kind of has this this strange callback to someone calling her actual name. You clearly hear someone call her Annika. She seems to be in some Borg corridors. Some Borg drones are are chasing her. And there is a large black bird, clearly a raven, uh, that's flying towards her. And she's... As I said, the part of this episode I I liked was that Jerry Ryan does a great job of going through different kind of emotional states as she deals with what's going on in the episode. And in this instance, she's kind of concerned about that this is happening to her and that's subtly conveyed through her reaction to it. Joe, I want you to try and count off for me the number of times that somebody on a Star Trek TV show has started having uh, hallucinations and it turned out to be okay. Or <laughs> it turned out to be nothing. It, it turned out zero turn, fucking zero where yeah. <laughs> it turned out to be something other than someone trying to hijack the ship or going on a fucking rampage. Well, okay. Uh, I'll give you a cast. Uh, counselor, counselor, counselor Troy. Which definitely time? Definitely had, had the psychic visions when she's trying to solve the murder. 
that you know she was like because the 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 murder happened down in like the warp core the warpness back and i will point out that series of hallucinations ended with her almost jumping into the fucking plasma stream so that my my point being soon people start trying to take over the ship she was just trying to solve a crime no she was trying to kill herself man it ended in her almost committing suicide and they had to fucking like gang tackle her to get her down like once someone starts having hallucinations put them in secured quarters or the holodeck and trick them like if you're having hallucinations no good will come of it ever 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 i promise you let alone your terminatrix (laughs) borg could be assassin <laughs> hairbringer of doom. If like, data starts like having the idea that we're gonna, I like. Uh, let's call seven of nine the Terminatrix. Yeah, that's what I, I like. We already it. called her that. Oh well, we have. But let's make it official. Like she's the Terminatrix. Yeah, man. Um, you know, anytime data starts wigging out, like if I was Picard after like the fourth time he took the ship over or went on a rampage and threw Worf through some doors, I'd be like, I'm sorry, you're having hallucinations. Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, I don't know. Uh, like get a bicycle lock and and hook you up to the the radiator over there or something seven of nines in that same camp of like catastrophic shit's gonna happen if this person gets off their rocker but she has the the vision she reports it which we always applaud when people are like oh something goofy just happened and the rest of the crew's like we're going to react somewhat supportively and take you down to sick bay and we're gonna get you checked out so they end up in sick bay and seven describes what's happening to her the confusion for her is that she claims that she shouldn't she was not afraid of the borg she was borg she sees them as her people um janeway and the doctor quickly ascertain that this 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 would seem to be a uh, ptsd related trauma as a consequence of her you know dealing with the reemergence of her human personality it's going to have to start to rationalize the things that happened to her i guess like and i think this goes to brian fuller's strength as a writer is that that's ultimately true that right there like they nailed it at the beginning of what's going on now there is a, a like a beacon summoning thing that we'll get into in a little bit so there's like a bit of a, a technical MacGuffin. That helps propel the plot a little bit. But quite frankly, they're correct right here. That is what's happening to her. She's worried about what's happening to her and conveys that in a very you know muted way, but clear enough. I'll tell you what else is clear enough. And it's something that I don't know if it's there's notes on her or whatever, but I have never really noticed them put any other character in profile shot as much as they are with her. And the more we talk about the silly outfits that they have her in and the other heavy handed sexual innuendo they try to carry along with uh, the seven and nine scenes, like really start paying attention to the photography in this uh, because it we've, we've already identified it as gratuitous. We know what it is, but it just, it, it bashes me over the head every fucking time, every yeah. time it's either the camera centered chest level on her or her standing perfectly uh, at an angle. So you just have this constant silhouette in it. My wife commented on it, and I had already had it in my notes. I think this uh, sick base scene really drives it home. But so while all they, this- oh, they have the camera pulled out in every single scene scene she's in, yeah, they did it. They did it in the in the holodeck scene. They started from behind her in in like three quarters. So guess what? Her ass is right there, right at the beginning of the scene. Yeah. 
I mean, they do it every chance they get. And like, it is, I don't think it's necessarily just us noticing it. I, because their photography in the first three seasons was so consistent in the half, you know, like half body shot, close up shot, reverse shot, kind of in the same shot composition type of, you know, the, the house style was always very similar. Yes. Now that it's changing and they're pulled out because they want to show, you know, Jerry Ryan's tits off as much as they can. Uh, it's noticeable. And I don't think that's weird to notice. It keeps taking me out of whatever they're trying to lay down. So <clears throat> that's uh plot one, right? Is uh, what's wrong with the Terminatrix. Plot two is what's up with these ugly ass aliens. These motherfuckers, the Bomar, they're like the, the my wife called them the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> and I think that's what they need to be They're They're these goofy motherfuckers. The Cleveland that, Bromars, the Cleveland Bromars. They've got, you know, some shit on their head, some shit on their hands. They're wearing hotel carpeting. You know, yes. Excellent. Uh, and then they have these weird wireframe helmets on that yeah. have a little like stained like a glass. kicker's face mask and like little mirrors. Yeah, little mirrors on the sides. These guys If you remember the first time we encountered the Cardassians in Next Gen, they looked nothing like the Cardassians that would come to be heavily featured in Deep Space 9. And one of the guys, actually they all had like yeah, these goofy wireframe helmets on that were just stupid. And that's what these guys look like. They kind of look like who what were they uh, from Insurrection, the Sorna? The Vidia uh, the Sona. Yeah, the Sona. They kind of look like that a little bit, like not the not the patchwork skin, but like the stretchy face. And not only do these guys look like shit, but they act like shit. These are some of the most <laughs> dickhead. Asshole. I got a quick story and I'm going to say okay. an apology to anybody who has ever tried to listen to our podcast in the car with children. Uh, we certainly do not record this, these episodes with any sort of consideration for language. And I was trying to listen to the podcast and I was driving to work in the morning and, uh, I had to take my daughter with me to work for an hour while my wife was at a work meeting and I completely forgot that she was in the back seat and she's like two and two months, two years old and two months. So she's, she's doing a lot of parroting and man, one of us dropped an F bomb and she, <laughs> She she picked right up on it and she's in the back. She just fucking shit, fucking shit. I'm like, oh, no, no. All right, honey, we're not listening to Daddy's Nerd Podcast anymore onto the radio. So to anybody who we've triggered their toddlers to start swearing uh, a deep, heartfelt apology, I'm very sorry. Uh, but these motherfuckers, <laughs> these guys are dickheads with no 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 equal like these are the worst most obnoxious guys i think we've ever seen come on the ship and we've seen some real turds on the ship we have i i will say though that the main dude the 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 counselor or prime minister or whatever uh he may have my all-time favorite line ever delivered at janeway like when shit pops off later and and shit goes wrong and i cannot wait to talk about that uh, he straight up tells Janeway, I question your competence. Oh yeah. Straight up. Like, how did you let all of this happen? And I'm like, in that moment, I'm like, you know what? 
Uh, these guys aren't so bad. <laughs> like, yeah, when I'm saying they're dickheads and assholes, like they see it. <laughs> they look stupid and they act annoying, but that—that's not to say they aren't enjoyable on screen. I would say, yeah, their 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 attitude is terrible, but I think they they're a welcome addition into what I'm seeing happening on the bridge. So yeah, we've got uh, Janeway trying to negotiate with these guys saying. Look, we want to cut a deal to get through your space. And uh, they're like, okay, well, we weren't going to do it, but um, you're lucky. You're in luck that we are going to allow you. But we've got some super strict rules. You can't go faster than warp three. You got to turn off all your weapon systems. You got to stop for uh, inspections. You're not allowed to talk to anybody except for military craft. Oh, and here's this cockamamie flight plan that's going to have you zigzagging all over the place. So you are in the least populated regions of our space always. And they don't really say how long this should take for them to fly through space if it's a straight line. But the worst case scenario is if they don't go into their space, it adds three months. And to that, I said, who the fuck cares about three months on your 70 year journey when you just got spotted 10 years by Kess? And even my wife said, like, who cares? Like, you're, it's going to take him forever to get home. What do they care about three months? Yeah, especially since these guys will spend months just fucking dicking around, yeah. you know, like doing science shit or going back and forth to pick up the captain while, you know, six Chakotay months desperate gets gets cock blocked by a by a fucking monkey. Six months. And, and also to remember, at least in this case, she's even bothering to ask permission to go in there. It was swarm where Janeway's like, fuck the Federation. Uh, we don't stand for bullies. We're just going to fly through this uh, region of space in a hostile manner. Uh, consequences be damned. So at least she's kind of learning. But as soon as these guys start laying these heavy rules on the floor, like tell them to fuck off. Just fly the extra three months. Even my wife's like, this is this is silly. This is a dumb. These people are dumb. Don't deal with them. Yeah, Janeway starts to try and like negotiate with them and. And all that, like, there's a whole thing developing. Meanwhile, Seven of Nine goes to lunch, and this scene is hilarious. Mm-mm. So, I loved it. it. Not because it was good, because it was unintentionally bad. Uh, Seven of Nine is told that she needs to start eating human food. She's reached the point in the assertion of her humanness that she needs to consume nutrients. So, she goes to the mess hall, and we have her first scene with Neelix. And Neelix is trying to be the friendly uh, neighborhood cook slash morale officer and convince, you know, seven of nine eat his nasty fucking space cat food. And uh, seven of nine replies by commenting on uh, the first time the Borg ever assimilated Talaxians. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, uh, what, 29 Talaxians had been assimilated, and she's... This goes back to an earlier concern I had. Like, how much of the Borg Collective's history is she able to realistically keep in her head? Like, this moves into some silly directions, like in uh, Day of Honor, where she's able to whip up a little uh, plasma relay doodad from memory to get the boneheads to leave uh, them alone so they could go back and get their warp core. Like she's got this detailed first encounter of uh, the Borg's uh, dealings with the Talaxians. 
Uh, and it's going to become silly later on because if she has this this total recall on everything the collective seems to have known, then how does the entire second half of this episode where she goes back to, you know, a Borg incident and, and has no memory of it? I think the answer to that is twofold. One, she knows what the collective thinks is important, which plays out in the scene, right? Like she has encyclopedic knowledge of technology, but she doesn't know actually how to eat because why would Borg care about that? So it's not part of the knowledge that the collective allowed her to retain. Mm. She didn't need to know that as a drone, so she doesn't, you know, but it, it might in some way be relevant to know about Talaxians, their species designation and the Borg's interaction with them in the past. So she knows that she knows how to, you know, fix things on the ship. Yeah. And, yeah. But make technological improvements. But spoiler, the whole at the end, we find out that, you know, the, the whole thing of this is going to boil down to their first encounter with humanity, which is when she gets assimilated. Like, shouldn't she know goddamn well what the Raven is and what that planet is and the significance of all of that? I think that that's part of the the P, per her personal PTSD though. Mm. Like that's the thing. Maybe that is the intersection of her borkness and her humanness, and that is why it is traumatic. Like that specific instance. Maybe. But let's get back to this cringe fest of a uh, of a drawn out shot here. Yeah, the real cringe fest is the fact that Neelix says he's going to steam his nasty cat food, and instead <laughs> he fucking fries it. stir fries it. Well, yeah. Listen, have you ever operated a hobo trash can fire food preparation unit before? Truthfully, I have not. Okay, well, then I don't think it's fair for you to say that you know how those things operate. I mean, yeah, well, you know if, what? I, I take it back. I think you could probably accurately describe my grill that way at this point. Well, I mean, I think until you've operated a hobo trash can fire yourself that it, it's unfair for you to say what is and is not a steaming functionality. Maybe you're just not familiar with that device's operation and that's why you're just you're just assuming you're assuming that's, that's how true. you steam it um ha- ha- hash- hashtag trash can fire privilege <laughs> you got me you did it hashtag stove privilege uh so he makes this stuff up for her and and this is why this scene specifically is why i'm very disappointed to see lavar burton's name attached to this episode because there's a lot of stuff that i think is outside the director's ability to control but the amount of time that he dedicated to this scene needlessly. And man, we've done some backstory and we've done some character development episodes for other characters in this show. And none of that stuff can come anywhere near this episode with a 10 foot pole. That's that's how far outside of the scope of character development this is. Where we're sitting there for like five minutes watching her slowly eat, you know, scrambled eggs or whatever that stuff was. Like there is I get that this is the new toy in in the Voyager toolbox or toy box, but man, we just, I don't think we need to go this, this deep in it. And when you take stuff like we're going to learn how to eat and we're going to put all this time into this episode and then you combine it with other stuff like the ongoing angst she feels that, you know, does she want to be in the Borg? Does she want to be in the crew? Who is she? My wife said it feels like they've been doing the same thing for four episodes now, and I don't know how many episodes it's really been, but it's it's already tiring, and I can't help but agree. And and watching her sit there and learn how to eat scrambled eggs under the tutelage of a space cat is not what I signed up for when I came to Star Trek. 
I agree this scene, like the eating part of the scene goes on way too long. I think the interaction between her and Neelix was good because they haven't had a scene yet together. And so like having her like awkward, weird inability to socialize. He shows her how to swallow. Before that, like the conversation they have when he's trying to convince her like to eat and the enjoyment of food. And, you know, she's like just suddenly like without anything else to to contribute to the conversation, just starts talking about Talaxi's getting assimilated. That's that was that was fun. The few minutes they spend on the fucking eating and swallowing and like, okay, take the little shuttle into the shuttle bay. Like, uh, okay, great. The fun part of their interaction is when Seven of Nine, I'm sorry, when the Terminatrix choke slams Neelix to the floor. And it's been a while since we've watched someone rough up Neelix. And, uh, you know, before anybody at home gets concerned, uh, it's okay. It's consensual. We know that Neelix is a masochist. I'm sure that uh, that gave him spank bank material for the next two months. Yeah, he was definitely talking about how he wanted to be uh, turned into Bolana's bitch boy. And uh, and, you know, he could just call her mama and and say that he wants it more. Just like what, two episodes ago, three episodes ago, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So this fits right into his fetish. Yeah. Um, so she has another one of her hallucinations. And this time she's like hiding under a table and she's like trying to dodge Borg linebackers in slow motion. And she finally snaps out of it uh, when this Borg echo memory says, uh, I don't know. I don't I don't know what the trigger is, but then you see this, this bulge, this bubble under her skin burrow up her forearm around her wrist and a some piece of Borg nanotechnology not nano at that point it's the size like a silver dollar uh, rips its way out of the skin flips open she's got this little assimilation mark on her and it's like a switch flips in her and she goes into Terminatrix mode and uh, does the aforementioned choke slam to Neelix to the floor and just beelines it out of mess hall meanwhile janeway's trying to negotiate with the uh cleveland bromars and uh it's clear that she's not feeling this little goofy flight plan they have when and this is what i thought was interesting she gets called to the bridge and as she walks into the bridge the whole bridge is like lights dimmed flashing red lights red alert does it not th- like the, the rest of the ship get red alert warnings when red alert goes off it should i think they might have just accidentally not shot that when they did the the prior scene and then you know didn't want to go back and do it but yeah all the red alert stuff is flashing when she gets to the bridge and then what follows here we have over the course of our now 75 episodes peter said so much about tuvok's absolute and undeniable incompetence when it comes to ship security now we know the reason why this happens, because it's the same reason it happens to uh, to uh, Worf all the time, is that the ship security has to be overcome for the bad thing to happen. And so the ship security officer is always in a position where they got to get hot game running on them all the time for anything to be a threat. Otherwise, it would just not be a threat anymore. I'm not going to hold Tuvok accountable for anything that happens here, with one exception, because this is classic voyager ramrodding and the 
technology scale that they've established not not being respected. Um, she goes, Terminatrix goes on a rampage. She starts beeline it towards weapons lockers. Uh, it's very clear that they have had eyes, and, and I'll give Tuvok credit on that, that they've had eyes on, on uh, Seven of Nine in this capacity, and that while Janeway has very high aspirations and beliefs of what can happen, I think the rest of the crew is, is rightfully weary that it's still a Borg drone and like a dog that's tasted blood. You know, they never know when it's going to snap and turn on you. And Chakotay literally says that early on in the episode. I mentioned it before, but they we have a return of Chakotay, the the opposite of a fan of Seven of Nine. The guy who tried to blow her out of an airlock, Chakotay. Yeah. Yeah. Where she, where he basically says, you know, we may not this may not be a battle you can win with her. She may just decide to go back to the Borg someday, you know, like straight up, just like, yeah, she might fuck us like she might just go fuck off like whatever you can't. Can't uh, can't predict what's going to happen with the with the mangy dog you brought on. Board, it's real talk, too. Is- and it's what I liked when Chakotay said back in Scorpion, like, hey, look, you know, maybe this is the limit of how far we get in the Delta Quadrant. Maybe this is where we need to fall back and circle the wagons and think about this, like some real reasonable stuff. And Janeway just fucking ignores him. And it's infuriating. That's why I think I when I initially sat down and recorded this with you, I was mostly favorably disposed towards the episode even if i know it had some serious flaws it's because there was there's this great writing in establishing the continuity of these characters beliefs about things and chakotay the return of the chakotay the the anti-borg doubter you know which who suddenly went away a couple episodes ago when seven of nine got detailed to like you know work in engineering or some shit when she's still half borged up Um, you know, like I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the effort that went into trying to make the show more cohesive. So, with these new nano, this what is it? The with the new space Borg, Borg pixie, pixie dust. dust that she has magically inhaled somewhere, uh, she is now spontaneously generating new Borg augmentations uh, that are wildly more powerful than anything else we've ever seen before. And uh, security intercepts her in the hallway and in what is, I would say, easily the worst scene of the entire episode. You got two security officers. They both take stun shots at her. And we find out that regular old Terminatrix now has personal body shields. So the phaser shots are just absorbed. Normally, like when Borg gets shot, the first phaser blast always lands and takes the Borg out and then they all modulate from that point and their shields become invincible after that right off the bat. Boom, boom. She deflects both of them. And these security dudes just stand by and let her walk by. There's no attempt to like tackle or anything. That's what I lay at two box feet. He needs to dis- discipline these guys. They are not committed to sparkle motion. They're letting Borg. This is worst case scenario for real fucking Borg on your ship, flipping out, going towards the gun cabinet. Uh, you could at least like, pull a classic Superman thug mover. Like you shoot the phaser, it doesn't work. And then you just throw the phaser and watch it bounce off her. These guys do nothing. They like stand to the side and just let her cruise through. Yeah. Like guys, dudes, there are space horrors out there. It's just gonna be like, well, I guess they're going to fucking eat the brain of everyone on, on deck seven. Yeah. Uh, so, so guys like just, just give her an arm bar. 
you just know, try. Give a little WWE. Come off the tur- uh, the the top turnbuckle and see what you can do. I'm gonna go like, back to the security barracks without even so much as like a black eye and not feel ashamed of yourself and and what you did at your job today. Uh, but not only does she have new Borg shields, she just has new like dungeon master shields. And whatever possible security precautions could have been on the table. And again, I think Tuvok, you know, they really put the full gamut of like, how does the Federation stop an invader? I think short of trying to lock on with a transporter and beam her off into space, which is what I'm sure Chakotay knows should have happened. They put up like force fields and they turn off turbo lifts and everything else. And she just walks through all of that like a hot knife through butter. Then your your boy, uh, smoldering catcher guy a random mother extra and Tuvok all surround the turbo lift that she was supposed to come out. And they, they mentioned specifically turning their phasers onto rotating modulations, which usually means you can get some shots off on a Borg. And she like comes out and they have the world's worst fucking firefight where they, where they all take like these pot shots at point blank range at her. And it doesn't work. And she's gunning from the hip very slow and methodically. And my wife asks, well, is her gun on stun? And I said, <laughs> well, I'm sure they didn't just kill Tuvok. She's like, did they just kill a major guy off off screen? And I'm like, that would be legit as fuck if that's how they wrote Tuvok off the show. But no, you know, unexplainedly, the rampaging Borg Terminatrix, uh, there's still enough humanity in the old well for her not to put it on. Disintegrate, even though she's got, you know, the phaser rifle that is only there to disintegrate stuff and i think that's like your first real clue that she's not like gone full native it's some psychological trauma she's first dealing with but they don't a pg-13 show or, or whatever but they don't mention like hey she she stunned you guys with that phaser rifle she she didn't kill you like on purpose there's there's something going on here we need to go get her like some kind of line there really needs that's to be crucial said. that is a great observation and i think had something like that been in there it would have made the rest of what we're going to see happen a little bit more reasonable to believe because up to this point with the exception of her stunning people i mean she's just shooting people she's ripping doors off hinges she's forcing her way and like hacking everything she uh does a site-to-site transport of her own volition and like gets on to a type six shuttlecraft and blows a hole in the fucking main shuttle bay nah, yeah it's the only shuttle bay in the shuttle bay door and flies off and it's like a complete fumble and it's like oh gosh maybe having you know psychotic borg drones on board as pets was a bad idea after all and all of this goes down right in front of the Kleeman bromars yeah they are very unimpressed by Voyager and obviously talk shit about the fact that they have a Borg, you know, former Borg drone on board. And the scene after uh, Seven makes her grand escape into her, I guess that she took off with like a type two, the type six, and they follow her in the type nine. It's like specifically you can see the difference in the shot later. They had story the scene where the guy's like, I question your competence about being able to do this. And then they reveal like, Oh, we're tracking her. Cause we've got this great sensor net that we've got erected across all of our borders that make it so that we know if there's like even a speck of dust that comes through. These are not the guys that Romulans want as neighbors. I'll tell you that right now. I love the fact 
that she flies into their space too. Like that, that was one of the other things I appreciated about this day of honor was like, what is the worst day of work possible for Bolana Torres? Like this is the worst day of work possible for Catherine Janeway. Getting embarrassed in front of the semi-hostile aliens and having a diplomatic crisis and her fucking Borg parenting project suddenly fucking off and wrecking everything yeah. along the way. And I mean, yeah, it's pretty bad. Let's go back to the next door reputation for Voyager Delta or uh, yeah, Delta Quadrant next door. You've got a pet Borg that is prone to go rogue. Like, can you imagine knowing that there's a ship in your space or along the border with a pet fucking Borg and that thing escapes and now it's loose somewhere in your space. Like what if it contacts the collective and brings a fucking cube up? What if this thing's like a zombie running around, just jabbing people in the throat and starting an assimilation crisis. Like this, it's like they're flying around with like the bubonic plague being held in Christmas tree ornaments strewn about the ship. Like you're just asking for something bad to happen. Right. And maybe like some horror on their part of like, how fucking dare you bring a goddamn Borg into our space? Absolutely. Are you, are you insane? Absolutely. They're, they're almost too nice about it. Like, by the way, the Cleveland Bomars are the, probably the most ineffective race that we've seen in terms of space combat. So they're, they're haughty, nature is undeserved because what happens is that they do catch up with seven of nine but in a shuttlecraft she manages to take out five of their ships well to be fair i'm sure she like super duper hot rotted the shuttlecraft keep in mind she did extensive modifications to uh to voyager and scorpion part two in like the course of half an hour or whatever so but even later on when voyager itself shows up they just like effortlessly just disable these ships there's not even a real fight they're just like eh, attack the weapons until they're fucking done oh they're done great you know we've disabled them all like it it seems to be trivial on their part they have to bring like 58 ships to actually be a threat to voyage 68 and um yeah so once they're gone and uh janeway's stuck to have to come up with a plan on how to do this then she's like i've dedicated a team to sweeping cargo bay two and finding out what's going on so am I led to believe then that at no point did you ever really go over everything in that cargo bay with a fine tooth comb to see, is there anything dangerous or feeding rogue? Myths? Yeah. Did the Borgs leave any fucking booby traps for us? Yeah. Really? Like, oh, the previous, the first time we're going to fucking check really the previous tenors who were psychotic murderous squatters. Uh, they all got blown out into space and, you know, we just haven't had the time to get in there and straighten up yet. So it's the first time I've really seen, Starfleet get in there with tricorders and uh, Harry finds, I don't know. Oh, uh, Bellana ribs him a little bit because I, they're still kind of fostering this, the subplot of uh, Harry and seven of nine might be a thing. And, yeah. They, they, they string this along just a tiny bit longer, unfortunately. Uh, thankfully, Harry does not return the teasing back to Bellana and dare to mention the, Tom Paris, Bellana Torres, boring ass romance subplot, which I was thankful for. Don't worry, it'll haunt us. I know. That's why I'm taking my 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 refuge in these episodes where I can. And they find some big, goofy piece of junk metal behind one of these uh, Borg regeneration alcoves. 
And they're like, oh, this seems really interesting. If only we'd met, you know, found this thing three weeks ago. And they take it off for an examination. At this point, Seven and Nine is off Rogue. The Terminatrix, which just shot the ship up and blew a fucking hole in the wall. Something we haven't seen since the Kazon were running a hot game on Voyager under the tutelage of Seska, Queen of Burns. And it goes back to this uh, this question of when is enough enough? How hard does Janeway need to stick to her guns on a losing proposition? Specifically concerning the Borg. Like, when are you going to realize you fucked up and now is the time to quit and just chill out? Are you going to invade uh, space and go to you know, what has very be, clearly been called? If you cross our borders, it will be considered an act of war. Are you going to go to war? on behalf of the Federation with an entire um, local government uh, over your rogue Borg science project. Uh, and it really, it casts Janeway in a very incompetent light. Well, hmm. I don't know if it, it's incompetent. I think that, it's a defensible choice because this is ultimately, you know, this is something that she's brought onto the ship. She made the decision to think that they could effectively de Borg seven of nine, that something has happened here. The extent of which is unknown, but ultimately they are responsible for whatever happens. We know that Federation people, especially Starfleet officers tend to take personal responsibility very seriously. It's a very deep and, and uh, motivating axiom for them. And so for her to say, this is my mess. I need to go clean it up because a, I owe it to the Bomar who are now have this problem. Who on specifically hands, and B, forbid to... me from entering their space though. And that's where like the judgment call comes in of like, how much aggro am I willing to draw? in the situation and I've got no one to fall back on and no one to ask. So she decides to do it. And that's, you know, supposed to reflect her deciding her personal responsibility to seven and to deal with the situation outweighs the political risk. I get, I don't think that's incompetence. I think that is a calculated decision that fits the available facts that we know about her as a character and that we generally more know generally about Starfleet officers. I get it. I can definitely see where you can quibble and say it's a stupid ass decision. But if it's a rogue board on a primitive planet that cannot handle the hell she just unleashed on it. Sure, I get getting involved when you've got a, a warp capable space faring civilization that has advanced technology that has specifically told you stay the fuck out of here or it's going to be treated as an act of war. You already let a Borg loose on us. Just stay the fuck away like I think she's really crossing the line. And what I really would have liked to see in this episode was a staff meeting where you had Chakotay or specifically Tuvok weigh on, on hey, uh, this is our recommendation to you, Captain, and and put her in a place where she has, needs to acknowledge that she's acting crazy. I think the the excessive level of Federation, you know, uh, compassion has to be under I mean this is not a, a new trait to Voyager though. I mean TNG there were so many times that those guys had their fucking pants pulled down because they were too nice for putting a, a fine point on it. You know what I yeah. mean? But that's so I'm not gonna that, I'm not gonna dock Voyager points for doing shit that they do all the time on Star Trek. 
I think all the times that TNG was put in a situation where like, we know what the morally right thing to do here is, but this is what we have to play out because thumbs the rules. And I think that's always been kind of one of the cool conflicts in Star Trek. It's like we have a moral imperative and, and, and in this case we have to observe it. And I don't, Janeway's so picky and choosy about when she chooses to acknowledge the prime directive and rules and diplomacy and all that other stuff. And I think she always just, she's got a real cowboy streak in her. I think there's a lot of Kirk in the way that Janeway acts. Uh, John Luke, I think took it on the chin many more times than we've seen Janeway willing to ultimately uh, have to take it. Uh, They come up with a plan. They say, look, we got a way to circumvent this uh, detection grid. We think we're going to be all right. We're going to send a little shuttlecraft in to track her down and uh, we've got a hypo spray that'll knock her out and we think we'll be good to go. So she sends out Tuvok and uh, Paris in a shuttle that's going to go on a little black ops mission. And I really like the scene where basically she pulls a uh, James Bond uh, license to kill and says, you know, you bring her down, whatever it takes. It's definitely like the indication of if you can't bring her in, take her out. Which I think belays the idea of we are responsible for this and we will put it into this if we must. It's also the first time we've really seen Janeway flat out give permission for or acknowledge that murder might be the only way to resolve something. Uh, I don't think it's the first time that she said, I'm going to kill you if I have to, because she said that to the Vidians. The first time she Yeah, but then she let him go. This is But she I mean, but she she let him go, but she said, if I ever, 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 ever see you or any of your kind threaten my ship again, I will murder you. I'm not going to kill you in cold blood right this second because I'm incapable of that moral choice as an enlightened twenty fourth century human. However, I am not going to spare any expense and putting my fucking boot on your neck if I am ever given any cause to do so in the future. And I think that laid a pretty good line down as far as when, you know, it's killing time. Yeah, but that was you stay away from me. I'm staying away from you. And as long as we stay away from everybody, each other, we're fine. But but if you don't, I'll fucking kill you. Like where that line was definitely there. She's like, you go find her. And if we don't have our way, then you kill her. It, it was it was different. It was different to hear a Starfleet captain say something like that. And uh, I, don't know, I think it was kind of cool. The episode uh, climax comes when so seven of nine blows up all the the fucking stupid Bomar Browns <laughs> goddamn ships. She goes to the Super uh, Bowl. Yeah, Tom and she goes she to does. the Super Bowl and like Galactic Justice always the, the Cleveland Bromar yeah, get she, their asses wrecked. Yeah, the, she just runs a fucking a gap blitz and just blows blows them apart. By the way, I'm from Cleveland, uh, so I'm well aware of like <laughs> the importance of shitting on the Browns. I, I I don't know any real specifics. Joe's the football guy here, so direct any inconsistencies in what we're saying to Joe. He's He's the adult. So the Bomar were in, were in a were in a clear passing down, and they were in in a shotgun formation. And so, you know, seven of nine knows a, a weak defensive line when she sees it. Just <laughs> ran ran the fucking linebacker right up the a gap, and just about murdered uh, the the Bomar Browns quarterback. It was awful. So 
the the type nine that Tom and and uh, Tuvok take to catch up, catch up, catches up. Tuvok has this harebrained scheme <laughs> of I'm gonna beam on to the other fucking shuttle and like ambush her, but. But seven of nine literally already thought of that tactic. and was standing behind where Tuvok was going to beam in. And so Tuvok beams in and, and seven of nine just ambushes him and lays down a, a, a Vulcan neck pinch on him. And I'm like, oh, that's that's nice. She's like, <laughs> it's, it's she's like, I like it. I see your logic and uh, I will raise you some hiding in the corner. And yeah, uh, she beats the shit out of him. And uh, again, instead of just killing him, throws him to the rear part of the shuttle, puts up a, a force field and continues on her merry way deep into Bromar space. And and disables, but does not destroy Tom's shuttle. Also important. So they finally she finally gets to where she was going and she thinks that it's supposed to be a Borg vessel because she is being recalled by some kind of recall beacon. And it is a beacon that is put out there when a Borg drone gets lost to, to go to it. And she's clearly fighting off some impulse to like kill or assimilate Tuvok. She specifically decides she's not going to. And again, I really feel like Jerry Ryan sells a lot of her like conflict in this through her performance She's very Borg-like at one, and then she becomes more emotional and afraid in another, and she has all these conflicting kind of emotions, and Tuvok sees that and starts to play at it, eventually gaining her trust enough that when they arrive at the planet, they go down together. I call this guidance counselor Tuvok. Uh, it's what he did with Kess, like when uh, Kess was uh, possessed by the sexy space vampire man. Yeah, he, or when he talks co-opte off his ledge like Chakotay is the dude that you send in for other people to talk about their feelings Tuvok's the hostage negotiator yeah he is uh he's also there to get his ass beat um he sees that this is very obviously not a board ship this is very secure space uh the idea that there's a cube just chilling out on this planet is ridiculous and um he sees that there's something very wrong with uh with what she's putting out i find all this very boring this is like the second time she's gone rogue and tried to rejoin the collective second time right because the first time was when she knocked harry kim into idiot security guy and knocked them both out and then kes had to pop them with a space ripple Uh, i hope it's the last time we see it because it's just a story that's not paying off for me and yeah she's sewn all this PTSD stuff, but I also feel like it's too early in her development to really for her to be having like these deep human emotions where she's showing mercy and like, no, I'm not going to kill you. You're going to go back to Janeway and tell her I rejoined the collective and tell her thank you for all of her kindness and all this other stuff. And it's like. It really feels like they're they're making some compassionate leaps that should have been occurring deeper in the season. I feel like her conflicted up and down nature makes sense you know she's vacillating in her emotions i think i i i don't know if i faulted it i think it makes sense right like she's unlocked all of this humanity in herself and her ability to find a good lane with it should be tough for her and so for her to go up and down makes more sense to me than her starting in a 
moderate position and then slowly ramping into a healthy, like emotional state. Spoken like a true apologist. <laughs> Spoke. Yes. <laughs> you, just, you just can't handle the truth. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a terminatrix trooper. <laughs> uh, see, the, the big revelation is that the ship that they find on the planet is called the Raven. <gasps> and hit the dun dun dun. I don't have it in my soundboard for some reason right now. Or a, spoken like have. a true hold, apologist, Joe. Hold on. Okay, it's dramatic piano. That's not working. What do we got here? We got. That's a bit more that's the like worst it. rim shot ever. <laughs> okay, just just go. We don't need to. Go. Unless you got the the kitten hold on, note hold on. clip in there. I got it. I got it. These are okay. all terrible. <laughs> you just need to uh, load up a bunch of Starship Troopers clips also for, for future reference. We need more kitten nose. Would on you like to, make... to know more and definitely needs to be on our oh, soundboard? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm doing my part. Um, yeah. So Janeway figures out what's going on well in advance, because whatever this piece of crap that Harry and Bellana pulled out from underneath her bed, it turns out to be like a Borg Dear Diary. And they read it. And of course, Harry gets creepy about what seven of nine's opinions are of his. And he's like, oh, yeah, here's uh, here's some description of these hallucinations she's been having, even though she told all of you guys all of the stuff already. And then Janeway's like, I've got it. It's a raven. I know exactly what's going on. Because the raven was the ship that her family was in when they somehow flew all the fucking way out into the Delta Quadrant, you know, millions of years uh, of travel that she made in the course at how old was she? She was a, a simulated seven, six. Yeah, so it was. She was six because she had had her sixth birthday, which reveals later on. Right, and uh, I don't know. She'd sure be about twenty. Warm-up. She'd be about twenty-five in canon at this point in her life. So, uh, yeah, they get to this this planet deep in Bromar space, and there's some wreckage on the planet surface, and they get in there, and it's Federation and nature. And it's her family's old ship. And uh, Tuvok, who had agreed to go down with her because he didn't think that this was good. And because she said she was feeling scared, she brings him down and they start poking around this thing. And we get a recap of how it is that the Hansons came to be assimilated. And you said a while ago that you think that uh, her, that Seven of Nine's pre-borg human story is the most boring part about her and would you count all of this as part of that i think that there there's another episode later on that basically conveys that the hansons were possibly the worst parents of all time (laughs) uh and that's what i find so uninteresting i i find the idea of her being assimilated at a young age and what that opens up to talking about assimilation and how the Borg reproduce quote unquote in general to be interesting. And so that part of her journey is interesting and having to have dealt with that. But yeah, this, uh, her parents are the worst. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, they took their child out into the middle of fucking nowhere in the galaxy, you know, fucking chasing after Borg on purpose like uh they get on this thing she starts poking around she figures out this is what's going on and surprise surprise the bromar have come along the cleveland bromars bromars and they start lighting up the orbital site 
or the the crash site from orbit. Now, usually it takes one good photon torpedo to blow everything up. And this is a real testament of how crappy these guys' weapons are. Yeah. Have multiple shots down on a 30-year-old Federation civilian ship uh, that is rotting on the planet's surface, and they can't seem to do anything. Um, yeah, they... Would you agree in the in the scene leading up to that, though, that like her going through the emotion of reliving the experience was pretty good? Like, that's really the fulcrum of the whole thing. Like, they set that up specifically so she could have the relive this traumatic experience and that, you know, I've gotten very good in Voyager at watching things that I don't care about and not blaming the actor and just blaming a boring script. So yes, she conveys PTSD. And I think that Jerry Ryan does everything she could have done with this script. Again, it just feels like the world's slowest story with the most repetitions of she's so conflicted about rejoining the crew and this and that, and my Borg history, it just, I'm over it. It's, it's, not even the seventh episode of the season yet, and I'm I'm already done with all of this stuff. So I, I I actually agree with you completely. They've they've rung this bell so many times already, and they've only barely started the fucking season. It doesn't like, seem while she's doing any of this. Like I don't I didn't roll my eyes, and I didn't feel like she was trying to stretch and and force me to laugh at a situation. I yes, looking back on it, she does do a good job of conveying someone who is fucked up and scared and confused. It's just, I don't care. Uh, at some point, Voyager shows up. I, I forget what happened exactly. Like if Tom sends off a distress call. Yeah, it's they decided just to come across the border after Janeway like figured it out and they're like, fuck it, we got to go do this. Janeway's they like, run into oh yeah, Tom. I don't care. I, what am I thinking? I don't care about boundaries. Yeah, gun it. They gun it. They run into Tom. They get obviously immediately found out that they're going to do this. They Janeway's just like, fuck it. We're doing it. We're doing it. Shows up, disables all of the the uh, Broman, uh, the Cleveland Broman's uh, ships and uh, ultimately bails out uh, seven and two Vok as the Raven slowly disintegrates after sustained bombardment from apparently the worst ships ever. And the episode just wraps on them deciding, OK, well, we can't cut through now because, you know, we sort of started a war with these people we don't know. So we'll uh, we'll go. Three months we'll go around. Is. Yeah, I guess we're going to burn that three months off. And, uh, you know, that the, they have a, a scene where they they wrap with seven reflecting on her experience with Janeway back where they started, which is the uh, Gimli free simulation of the Leonardo da Vinci's workshop. The concept here is that seven is still trying to comprehend the fullness of what's happened to her in her life. And this is been something that she's learned from and grown from and evidently nobody's learned any fucking lessons when it comes to limiting her computer access because she just kind of accesses the captain's personal holodeck programs without asking and right after she got done you know jacking a shuttlecraft and stunning a bunch of security guards in a shuttlecraft so uh they just they lost another shuttlecraft then right yeah they don't mention the shuttlecraft that she hijacked they don't mention it was destroyed. They don't mention if they recover it. It's just gone. No big deal. Just, just leave it there. No big deal. It's like you guys. You know what? You know what? Cleveland Bromonts, you, you could use an upgrade. 
Here's your first round draft. It's a it's a it's a Type Six shuttle. Enjoy. It's got a nice booty on it. I think you'll get good mileage out of this. Don't don't uh, Robert Griffin a third this one. Don't run it out there for a a a playoff game. It's not ready for. Don't do that. Yeah, what Joe said. Sports. <laughs> so the question we're left with is how many second chances does Seven and I get? We know that Chicote has a. Uh, free reign to fuck up and and disobey and do whatever he wants as much as he wants as does everybody else on the ship uh how many times is your crazy borg terminatrix going to be allowed to flip out and endanger the entire crew as it tries to rejoin the murderous um borg cult i think that's actually becomes a bit of a open question later on uh, they fortunately don't ring this bell for a while because uh, the next few episodes we have uh, the next one I know we're we're, we're going to watch is a self-contained plot doesn't have anything to do with this and then the ones after that are probably the best Voyager episodes in most people's opinions yeah I definitely put them in my top five so we'll 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 get back to this but for now uh, let's just say she's on strike two I'll give her a strike three because strike one would have been when, you know, she forced him into fluidic space and put him in. Uh, well, whatever. That's that's pre freeing. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't care for this episode and I'm done with her, her conflicted. Am I Borg? Am I human bullshit? I'm ready to move on. And I think this is way too much screen real estate to give any one character an entire episode where I'm being forced to sit there and watch Neelix teach someone how to eat. Shame on LeVar Burton for this one. Uh, I can't. I'm going to have to say this is a thumbs down for me. I think that as I've talked to you about this, uh, I I liked it more than I disliked it. C, C, almost a C plus. What are we watching next week? Uh, What's amazing to me about this episode, too, is like I didn't even have half a page of notes on this thing. And we just went an hour and 15 minutes talking about it. So, uh. I don't know. There must have been something there worth talking about. But moving on, we're going to be going into season four, episode seven, Scientific Method. We see uh, Janeway with her face pressed into a toilet bowl seat and uh, the doctor. Oh, it looks like he's given her like a Swedish massage. Says a string of bizarre illnesses afflicts Voyager. The doctor and seven of nine uncover a team of alien researchers performing medical experiments. So there we've got seven and nine playing the Mary Sue again already. And we are going to be treated to a next generation retread, which is aliens doing secret medical experiments on the crew, uh, which is unaware. So, yeah, you pretty much nailed it, dude. Uh, This is the first of what will be many seven of nine doctor team ups. I dare say that as the show goes on, they become the main characters. And I'll tell you what, man, right now, just based off of this episode, again, the amount of screen time and character development they gave a brand new character that is unprecedented. Like, my fear is that this show is going to become Star Trek 7 of 9. I think that for uh, for a large part, it actually is. I, I, I think that your fear is well-founded. There's certainly exceptions to that. I think that uh, when the show was particularly good is when it, it uh, knows when to pull back and when to, to go forward on that. But there's definitely going to be stretches where it's going to feel like 
Jesus fucking Christ, who is the main character of the show? Is it is it is it the Terminatrix? Is it is, is this what we're doing now? Uh, I think that they find a nice groove with getting her and the doctor into shit more often because, you know, we know the doctor is a solid force and there's a lot of potential there as far as getting those two characters, you know, working together. Uh, But yeah, um, just stick with it, man. We're about to actually starkly uh, after this next one, starkly ramp up in quality for the rest of the season. We need to, because this has been a very bad season so far, I think. I kind of agree with you. I mean, I think I felt like was I felt like season four was was better than what came before. But this this first part has been like very bad. This hasn't been this bad since like the dregs of season two. Like nothing really good stands out. So well, season three set a high bar for me and, and season four needs to unfuck itself with a quickness. So, all right, man, that's it for me. All right. Thank you for listening to Future Please Hateful Voyage to the Delta Quadrant. We'll see you next week.